This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. There's always going to be that raucous cry from the colony of kittiwakes which have taken up nest on the old castle here in Dunbar and they'll be greeting the fishermen as they go in and out of the harbour here which they're already doing at this point early morning and you look round the harbour and there are a few men working on nets and, and on their lobster pots which are stacked high on the side of the harbour. And it's a quintessential harbour scene. It's got every element you could possibly think of into a very neat little harbour here on the east coast of Scotland. I've come here because this is a starting point for a new coast-to-coast trail from Dunbar across to the west coast of Scotland to Helensborough. And it's named after a man who was born here, but who became one of the great pioneers of conservation. Not here in Scotland, but in America, where he helped initiate the American National Parks, which is not bad for a wee lad from Dunbar. (laughs) I'm with John Thomas, who's the chairman of the John Muir Birthplace Trust. This man, John Muir, who was he? He was born in Dunbar in 1838, the son of a very small grain merchant who went on to become so successful that when Muir was 11 Coming on 12 years old, they were able to afford to emigrate to America. But in those first 11 years of his life, Muir formed an absolute enthusiasm for nature. And he speaks very happily, very fond memories of the sound of the seabirds along the shore of Dunbar. He has some lovely stories he told of clambering over the castle by that time a well weathered ruin highly unstable as an old man he looks back and says I would never have dared to go if I'd known the dangers So his passion for nature began here, exploring this rocky shoreline that we can now look down over onto and the the waters here He used to go nesting in the hedgerows of East Lothian, investigating the rock pools along the shore. And what is interesting is that he started off, like so many small boys, to some extent seeing nature as something to chase and investigate in a rather destructive way. And very quickly, he became a real enthusiast. He talks, for instance, of lying uh, in the grass on a sunny day, listening to the skylarks and competing with his brothers and his pals from Dunbar as to who could see the sky lark in the sky for the longest and they would shout at each other saying I can still see him, I can still see him as the skylark went higher and higher and higher but he was also somebody who challenged authority and convention in his free time at the weekends and so on he ignored his father's strictures about being properly behaved and being uh, respectable and so on and he was off around the town having what he called just a wild time in as wild a place as he could find and wildness became one of the mantras of Muir he loved wild places and behaving in a way which was free and engaging with nature and that is what he managed to fulfil when he left Scotland 
and went to America with his family. They went because of religious reasons, his father? father became a fundamentalist Christian who became a member of a small fundamentalist Presbyterian sect. Quite a number of them emigrated to America, to Wisconsin, uh, in the belief that they could set up their ideal and lifestyle. I noticed there's a John Muir country park and there was a short walk. Some years ago, the East Lothian Council and the Birthplace Trust established the John Muir Way from the boundary of East Lothian near Coburn's Path up to Musselburgh. And then two or three years ago, the Scottish government decided to establish this coast-to-coast route, which they wanted to name after John Muir. And quite a number of us involved in uh, outdoor activities did not want it to be called the John Muir Trail for sake of confusion with the John Muir Trail in the States, which is a true wilderness trail. And the thing with the John Muir Way, coast to coast, is that it's quite intentionally a low-level trail to encourage the people from the towns and cities of Scotland just to get out into nature and into the countryside. But if he left here when he was 11, can you really claim him as a great Scot? Yes, we can claim him, both as a great Scot and as a great American, as actually a great man. Um, and certainly as a great Scot, because if you read his many books and writings, which were really the basis for his successful campaigning, it is littered with, with, with Scottish expressions and Scottish references. He loved to gaze and wonder at the shells and seaweeds, eels and crabs in the pools among the rocks when the tide was low, and best of all, to watch the waves in awful storms thundering on the black headlands and craggy ruins of old Dunbar Castle. Now, if we had a better weather forecast, <laughs> with a nice storm coming in across the North Sea there... We would see what he could, was writing about. We could wait about. and see what he was writing about. <laughs> the John Muir Way is 134 miles long, and you can walk the whole end of it across to the west, or you can just take nice little snatches of it. But the original John Muir Trail in America was established shortly after John Muir's death. 1914 and Ronald Turnbull who is a writer and a long distance walker because you've done that trail you're a great admirer of John Muir I actually came to John Muir kind of backwards the trail is so famous the one in America it's one of the very best long distance walks in the world I went out there and walked it as I was walking it everybody we met said you're from Scotland John Muir was from Scotland (laughs) and it was they who told me all about John Muir he's always been much better known in America than he is in his native Scotland. Every American schoolchild knows about John Muir. I think it is high time we Scots <laughs> caught up with him. And you did the Great Trail. How long was that? It's 200 miles, but it starts in Yosemite National Park. It's a national park largely because of John Muir. It mm-hmm. finishes on Mount Whitney, which is the highest point of the USA outside Alaska. And in rather strong contrast to this path, your foot does not touch tarmac from one end of the trail to the other. <laughs> Now, if we take the trail out of Dunbar, which is quite coastal, where does it roughly go from here, Ronald? Well, it goes up the coast to Edinburgh. It actually skirts round to Queensferry, underneath the Forth Road Bridge, and then it goes across the centre of Scotland by Falkirk, and then it ends up being a little bit hilly over past Loch Lomond, looking north past Loch Lomond. The idea is to reproduce the journey, the one long journey that he actually made in Scotland, which was the evening his father said... Children, you don't have to do your homework tonight. We're going to America in the morning. And they crossed Scotland to Helensborough, which is where they took ship to go across to America. And where this trail ends. Yes. Here behind us, there's a lovely piece of sandstone. It's slightly tilted Mm -hmm. by the continental collision that formed 
Pangaea supercontinent. And how thrilled John Muir would have been by that theory. He would have been so excited by it. And the iron in the sandstone has actually kind of joined itself together after the stone's been deep underground buried. The iron has migrated through into it and formed these lovely lumps and swirly bits that you can see lying inside the sandstone. Yes, and very distinctive layers. And in John Muir's writings, which you're very familiar with, did he ever talk about his longing for Dunbar and what he felt he'd left behind, or was he so, perhaps, overwhelmed by what he came across? He was thrilled to be going to America. He'd had Audubon's Book of Birds from the library, and he was just so looking forward to the wildlife and nature that he was going to find in America. In fact, what he found was 12-hour days of hard labour on his father's farm. So how did he make that step from being farm boy, really, into being this great American hero? It started off with a journey of a 1,000 miles. When he grew up and became independent, he was actually very eminent as a mechanic. He used to invent amazing things. He invented a self-awakening bed. He built a clock, and it had a mechanism attached to his bed so that at the time he'd set for getting up in the morning, the bed would tip up, (laughs) throw him out of bed. Yes, when he was too old for beatings, his father decided that he would be allowed to read books other than the Bible. Before five o'clock in the morning when the working day began. So Muir used to wake himself up at one o'clock in the morning in order to study books of natural history and geology. But he had a moment of awakening when he was in his early 20s. He was working as a mechanic and he was filing something and the file broke and a bit of it went into his eye. For three weeks he was blinded. He decided that his whole life was wrong and that he wanted to be a naturalist. And when his eyesight came back he gave up his job and he walked across America from Wisconsin all the way down to Florida to Savannah, Georgia and he wanted to take a ship for South America to study the natural history there but there weren't any ships for South America in the harbour so he got a ship to San Francisco instead and he just wandered into the town first person he met he said show me the way to somewhere wild and they pointed him to Yosemite and That was him. That was the course of the rest of his life. It was just happened that after he'd been living there for about 10 years and writing for magazines, he met somebody and this chap said, could you write a couple of articles about this dreadful thing they're planning to do in Yosemite, logging these wonderful sequoias? And within a couple of months, a bill had gone through Congress to protect this groves and he suddenly realised that he did have power to do something very important. He was, in a way then, by doing that beginning to pave his way to become this one of the first sort of environmentalists in a way. Yes, a conservationist is what Mm. he called himself by the end of his life. The most crucial moment towards the end of his life was when President Theodore Roosevelt came for a little jaunt in Yosemite. But he wanted a break in the countryside, get away from it all, no politics, no lobbying. And they did have a wonderful time. And John Muir pulled him out of a snowdrift and they went up to Glacier Point and had their photograph taken looking out at the waterfalls. But he was very intensively lobbied the whole time by John Muir. And he was convinced the crucial point, which is that wilderness is worth preserving for its own sake. It's not just because you need to save some of the trees for the next generation to chop down or because it's the water supply for San Francisco. By the end of Roosevelt's presidency, 6% of the USA had been designated as National Forest It still has an enormous amount of its land area, its protected area. Five national parks, 23 national monuments, including the Grand Canyon, were designated by Roosevelt as a result of this long weekend in the woods with John Muir. 
having left Dunbar, I came up round past Edinburgh and then you start heading east and you come to Falkirk, which is uh, one of the places that the John Muir Way passes through. But what you can do when you're on this trail is just nip off it for a while because there are lots of lovely things to see along the way. And I think one of the most astounding is to come into Helix Park, where I am now with thousands of other people all milling about, walking, cycling, playing, just having great fun. But the draw is this amazing sculpture known as the Kelpies. (laughs) (laughs) These horses' heads which rise out of the ground, the neck and the head, and they're made out of a shiny, glinting metal. They are beautiful. And they dominate the landscape, don't they? And I'm with Tracy Fullerton and Ian Wright. Now, you're both residents in this part of the world. And um, I know you're very keen for us to come and see this. I know why. Delighted. The most exciting thing is that we've got this incredible, beautiful thing right beside us. And we can share it with all these people. And it makes us so proud. Like, so proud. We saw this growing up from absolutely nothing. Drawings, pictures... And uh, it's taken two years from the small maquettes. Like a model, the real is thing. that? Yes. It's a model. Uh-huh. It's a, we decided that they, they were the, almost the height of the pylons. And people just wouldn't believe us. But you can see it today. Uh-huh. It's absolutely fantastic. What height is that? The tallest one's 30 metres mm. high. This park that we're in, which is full of amenities as well as the Kelpies, uh-huh. you, you saw oh, that at the start and you... You weren't sure what was going to be happening? No, well, I had a dog. We've got two now. And we always enjoyed bringing them through the park. It was kind of a wilderness at first. And I got involved, really, because there was a sign saying that this is all going to change. And my heart kind of sank because I loved it. So I got involved with the Helix team, and I had volunteered for over four years since then, just to really find out for myself what was going to change. And to to be told you were going to get these enormous sculptures, the fantastic lights, a canal extension it was going to bring in tourism it's going to be the heart of where we live, really a green lung it really is just like living somewhere so exotic and so rich Why are they called kelpies? They're mythical shape-shifting sea creatures. The way I see it is that they're beautiful Clydesdale horses, duke and and baron. Because Ian can't you see the strength and power in them? Very much so. And, and it says a lot about this, what is quite an industrial landscape in many ways, isn't well, it? There were, yeah, in this area, there were hundreds and hundreds of horses because we had the canals. The horses pulled the, the, the boats along from uh, Glasgow through to uh, Falkirk. Truly, it's a, a, a living history for us now, uh, seeing these. I love the one nearest to us, Ian, because its head is looking down and it's almost watching the people. It, it is... Now, we've been very lucky in that we're going to get access inside the Kelpie, uh, the one whose head is raised, and there's a wee moat round it. And Lucy, as, as a representative from the, the site, you're going to help us get in there? Yeah, this one's quite special because we don't normally... We don't run the tours in here, so this is one's a wee bit exclusive access. <laughs> so you have to go through the moat yeah, first? yeah. step inside and 
elements of light come through. It's like a cathedral. You can see how these steel plates are like pieces of jigsaw which have been attached to this framework which reaches right up and then you can see the curve where it's going into the head and it's in metal grey, it's very light, it's very airy, sort of pattern of light from the gaps in the steel plate down onto the floor and us. And to see the simplicity but the absolute excellence of the design and structure. There's no doubt when you see the size, everything looks so fine until you see it close up. These are great big, great big pieces of steel and if you look, everyone's carved. That must have drove men mad (laughs) making them. It's amazing there are 990 special plates in this complete horse here and they're all different mm-hmm. every single one of them there is a buzz of traffic that's the M9 just alongside us Ian isn't it, it? Is so, indeed, but yes. the, the drivers will see the heads of the kelpies very clearly very very easily Yes. <gasps> the police had to stop them one day because they had stopped their cars and they were taking photographs <laughs> from the motorway from the motorway yeah <laughs> Not so good. Not so good. (laughs) You feel the focus of the world is here now because we've got something so unique and huge and beautiful and meaningful and it just makes you feel so connected and smile so much. John Muir was against building on wilds spaces, you know, he was this great environmentalist and um, conservation of of great swathes of ground so he may look upon this place and feel you know, man has made such a huge imprint on it, but sitting alongside that is how you're saying families, men, women, children they can come into this wide open space now that they never would have done before, so in a way it does fit in with the spirit of John Muir it, it does, completely. And you're, you've got people learning about different plants that are local species because we've, we've replanted lots of local plants. You would never have come here before. This was just all just muddy and marshy area, fields, so Absolutely. you couldn't there was, just... There was nothing built in this. Unusable, a space it? between Grangemouth and Falkirk, and it was never, ever used. And you can see it now. I'm stepping back onto the John Muir Way. It's quite easy to find again because of its badge, this little face and beard of John Muir (laughs) on the posts as you go along. And I'm rejoining just above the town of Balloch, which sits at the southern end of Loch Lomond. And for company here, I have Jerry Luce, who is a poet... Uh, great walker. Uh, Although yeah. we're going uphill now. Both of those and things. And it may sound as though we're not good walkers, <laughs> but this no. is quite a steep hill. Well, I've been walking as long as I can remember, obviously, <laughs> and I've been writing poetry oh. for about as long. And the path that we're treading now, which, OK, is a bit of tarmac, but will take us up to the top of the hill where we can get views down over the lochs. It'll take us onto the Muirs. And you've walked this part, in fact, the whole John Muir Way. Yes, I've walked it all. We're... Easter and beyond and was blessed as we are today this evening with really fine weather. I just love the softness and gentleness of light on a summer's evening. Yeah. It's so calming and peaceful. Especially here you can we're getting a glimpse of the of the bends that's Ben Lomond in the distance there just as ever. The top of it 
hidden by a little bit of cloud. But further over to the east, you can see the sun is still shining beautifully. Mm-hmm. And the cloud shadows are passing over the little green hills at the, at the south end of the loch. When you did the walk, Jerry, you had the company of an American poet? Yeah, a man called Andrew Schelling. He knows uh, the Sierras very, very well, and he knows, knows the work of John Muir very well. The decision was that he would kind of represent the American phase of um, Muir's life in the, the walk across Scotland, and I would represent the Scottish part of his life. And so how did you decide to uh, develop that sort of representation? By planting trees, seeding the John Muir way. Obviously, we didn't carry trees with us, but embryonic trees in the form of seeds. And some of them were native Scottish trees that he would have been familiar with, John Muir, and others that he would have encountered in the Sierras. You planted them along the side of the path? or Wherever it seemed appropriate. But an equal, if not the biggest partner, was the landscape. Or the landscapes, the places we passed through. They kind of... I don't want to be too fanciful about the whole thing, but they spoke to us and gave us some inclination of people who'd trodden there before, industries that had been and gone... Um, the lives of farmers, as well as the lives of the flora and fauna that were there uh, before all of that, and gave us an inkling. Because you can read landscape, obviously. Everybody knows that. Just on this side of the pathway, there's a, a run of beech trees, as though it had been somebody's avenue, perhaps. But because we're high up, look how the leaf branches start at a much lower level, and the trunks are twisted and gnarled which you don't often see in a beech tree No, they, they generally grow straight up with a single trunk. Here there's some trunks, uh, some twin trees joining together into one kind of trunk some of them are massive and buttressed at a, a very early stage in their lift off My best guess about this is that it was it's a boundary marker over there was somebody's land on this side where we are was somebody else's land more, as you get a little bit lower down much more fine agricultural yes. land. And I love beech trees, but these ones have a character all of their own. Lark rising. Oh, call of the lark on the evening air. Yes. Oh. And since we've come up uh, from Balak uphill every step of the way, that, that cool breeze is very welcome to me, at least. <laughs> this is my patch, you know, this, this and Argyle on north. And I've been walking it for a good long time now, so this is my favourite part of the John Muir Way. But when you were doing it, I feel that you had the spirit of him there because you did things that he did. We certainly did, and one of the things that we... which was, in a sense, contentious, um, we carried the three books that he carried on his walks, um, Paradise Lost, John Milton, uh, a copy of the New Testament and uh, a copy of Burns' poems, Robert Burns' poems. And the reason that those books were contentious was if you're walking all day, weight becomes an issue. And so we were forever trying to pass off the New Testament to each other because it was the heaviest book by far. Um, I always wanted to carry Burns because it was quite light, but I didn't always get away with it. But, uh, you know, I mean, seriously speaking, John Muir was, was in our thoughts all the time. And, you know, we were wondering, sometimes aloud, 
But we had long conversations about what he would have made of whatever it was we were seeing, whether it was the fauna, the flora, the people. And here we're coming to open more. Rushes growing and deep moss and... Green grow the rashes, so one of Burns' songs. So then, how do you feel about John Muir? The things he did were obviously quite grand in scale. From his walks to the setting up of the, the national parks there. But I think his legacy is a bold and strong one that we would be uh, well advised to look at very, very closely. Uh, we live in a very different world, but here in Scotland it can be done just by closing your own front door and walking out and meeting up with the John Muir Way and strolling or marching very fast across the whole of Scotland.